Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you all here. It seems like this Omicron has been hitting anyone and everyone, so I wasn't sure who all was going to be here this morning. Uh, but I'm so glad you're well and able to be here. Uh, and we're continuing to pray for those among us who are not able to be with us because of, of COVID, and uh, hopefully they're going to recover quickly. Uh, we've uh, kind of taken a bit of a pause for a number of weeks. Uh, I think it was the week before Thanksgiving that I started. I did a couple of messages with uh, an emphasis on giving thanks, and then we went into our Advent season. So it's been a while since we've been in the Gospel of John, but we're returning uh, to the Gospel of John today. I've titled the whole series, if you remember, The Message Became Flesh. <clears throat> and uh, before we jump into uh, the passage, I wanted to ask you to consider something. Uh, imagine that you were wanting to renovate something in your house. Say you want uh, to do something Ellie and I did a couple of years back. Just kind of tear out the whole kitchen and kind of redo the whole kitchen uh, more to your liking. Uh, how would you go about picking the person to do that for you? <clears throat> would you just uh, look for a, a nice looking billboard or a car with a good sticker talking about how well they do their construction work? Or um, maybe you would talk to the contractor face to face and base your choice on what the person says to you. Well, those might be ways to find a good contractor, but you know what the best way to find a good contractor is? Is uh, to talk to the person face to face and then to actually view some of his work. What has the person done? Look at the quality of his craftsmanship and then you'll have a good idea if what he says matches what he does. Uh, then hopefully you've found yourself a good contractor. Well, that's, that's the point Jesus is trying to make in today's passage. I've titled the message, Works That Demand Faith. And we're in John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. Uh, before we start reading, let me remind us of where we left off. We have had finished a very long section. That's one of the reasons I've, I wanted to kind of get through all these other messages before we went back, because it was a really good breaking point. Uh, this long section, several chapters long, that centered around the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, where the key ideas were light and uh, water. And Jesus tells them, come to me and I will give you living waters. And he also uh, tells them, I am the light of the cosmos. And uh, goes on to prove that he's not just talking by taking a man born blind and restoring light and sight to him. That leads to this big discussion back and forth. And we end up in the verses right before where we're picking it up today with Jesus going and before those who are grilling him and the religious leadership is unanimous in their rejection of Jesus to the point that John doesn't even bother parsing out who's who. He just calls them the Jews. And all the religious leadership has been opposing Jesus vehemently. And we end up with Jesus saying that I am the good shepherd. Everybody else is nothing but a thief and a liar. And very clearly Jesus is setting himself up in, in clear opposition to the religious leadership of his day. That's kind of where he leaves it off at the Feast of Booths. 
And now some time has passed, and that's where we pick it up here in verse 22. It was then the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in Solomon's portico. So the Jews surrounded him and were saying to him, How long will you keep our soul in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So, some time has passed. The Feast of Booths would happen in September, um, uh, September, October. The Feast of Dedication would happen in November, December. So a couple of months have passed. We don't know if Jesus returned to Galilee and has now come back to Jerusalem for this feast. John doesn't mention it if he did do so. So it may be that Jesus has just stayed there those couple of months and been in the area. And we now arrive November, December at the Feast of Dedication. Now, this is a different feast. The Feast of Booths was one of the three major feasts that all uh, Jewish males, adult males, were required by the law of Moses to travel to Jerusalem to the temple to celebrate that feast. This was not that kind of a feast. Uh, those three feasts I'm talking about date back to Moses and they go back 1500 years or more uh, to when they, they first started being celebrated. The Feast of Dedication was relatively new. It was less than 200 years old. And why were they celebrating this feast? How did that come up? Well, it wasn't in the scriptures. It wasn't in the law of Moses. But it was something that they had started celebrating because they had not too long ago had a very difficult period when there was a Seleucid, a, a, a governor in Syria that was uh, in control of the territory of Israel, up north, Damascus, that kind of area. And uh, there was a guy there, a king, by the name of Antiochus the Fourth. He gave himself the name the Illustrious One, Epiphanes. And uh, he was very full of himself, and he uh, was very upset with the Jews for their religion and all the stuff they did. And finally, one day, he just got fed up, and he went into Jerusalem, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar to desecrate it, to defile the, pit, the, the altar. And then he took all the copies of the scriptures he could find and destroyed them all. And he decreed that it was uh, illegal to circumcise males and it was illegal to observe Sabbath rest. And he basically forbade the Jewish religion throughout the territory of Israel. Well, this sparked the revolution of the Maccabees. And that whole revolution the name Maccabee comes from one of the leaders that they had his name was Judas and they gave him the nickname Maccabee which means the hammer because he was so successful in his uh, fight against these superior forces and finally Judas Maccabee is able to lead the forces of Jerusalem to, to of, of the Jews to retake Jerusalem and they are able to retake the temple area and they are able to reconsecrate and cleanse the temple and rededicate it for temple service. And from then on, they've been able to worship and sacrifice and do all the things that they needed to do at the temple in Jerusalem. So they began to celebrate this every year in this time. It happened on the 25th of Kislev, uh, which again would be November, December, somewhere in there. We know this feast, it's still celebrated today as Hanukkah. 
so they, they uh, celebrated this. Now, unlike the other three feasts I've just mentioned, this one, there was no requirement of the law that everyone had to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate it. So people celebrated this in their homes, but some of the more pious Jews would maybe perhaps travel to Jerusalem to celebrate it there. And uh, Jesus happens to be there. Uh, and John knows that his readers probably are not Jews and probably don't know when the Feast of Dedication takes place. So he tells them it's winter. And Jesus is walking in the temple in Solomon's portico. Now the temple was surrounded on all four sides by long colonnades. Uh, with covered uh, and you know columns on either side and Solomon's portico was one of those it makes sense that if it's colder it's winter time you don't want to be out in the middle of the courtyard where you'll be colder but you want to be in the portico areas so he's in Solomon's portico and there the Jews again John uses the Jews not to refer to the the Jews as a people or as a race because every time he talks about the Jews it's people who are opposed to Jesus while there are many examples in the Gospel of John of Jews who who responded to Jesus in faith many disciples many people who turned to him in faith so uh, Jews the Jews is kind of John's shorthand for the religious leadership who have all joined forces against Jesus so these the Jews uh, surround him uh, over there in Solomon's portico and they, they demand an answer. How long are you going to keep our soul in suspense? Literally in the Greek, how long are you going to take away our soul? Uh, and the idea of that idiom seems to be uh, you've, got us, you've left us hanging here. We're so desperate for the deliverance of the Messiah. We are so desperate for God to fulfill what he's promised and you're dangling it in front of us all. Why don't you just finally come out and say it? Are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. Now the problem with this is that uh, it's very clear from what we've read thus far that these, the Jews we're talking about here, have no interest in Jesus being the Messiah. They have already identified him as somebody who is operating under the power of Satan. They have already identified him as a sinner. They have already dis dismissed him as a charlatan who deceives the people. They very clearly have no interest in Jesus being the Messiah. And yet, this is the demand. If you're the Christ, make it public. And obviously, the only reason they want him to do that is that they're already prepared to contradict everything he has to say. They're already prepared to reject anything he has to say. It kind of makes me wonder. We look at this and say, wow, the, those rotten people... Uh, why do they respond to Jesus that way? But I, I wonder if we ever think of how we sometimes maybe come to Jesus. Do we sometimes come to him and demand things from a basis that isn't faith? From a place of unfaith? Do we come before Jesus with demands? Let's keep reading verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works which I do in my Father's name, these bear witness about me. But you do not believe. So Jesus' response is, what do you mean speak plainly? I've told you who I am. 
Now true, uh, apart from the Samaritan woman, she's the only person that we know of in John's gospel that Jesus explicitly said, I am the Messiah. She said, when the Messiah comes, he will show us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak with you am he. So yes, in that case, he very explicitly said, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. But consider the things he's very publicly already said. He has used the term son of man to refer to himself. That that is a title from Daniel chapter 7 in which the Ancient of Days, God Almighty, sits on his throne and before him on the clouds of heaven comes the son of man and he gives to him the eternal kingdom. When Jesus speaks of himself as the Son of Man, he is very clearly saying, I am the promised king. I am the Messiah. Not only does he say, you might say, oh no, he's using Son of Man the way Ezekiel does, just to say that he's a human being. But Jesus says, the Son of Man, I'm the Son of Man, and I am going to judge the living and the dead, and I am going to give eternal life to whomever I please. Does that sound like he's saying, I'm just another human being? He's very clearly communicated who he is. He has told them, before Abraham was, I am. He's not only told them he's the Christ, he's told them he's God. What do you mean, tell us plainly? He says, I've already told you, the problem isn't a lack of communication on my part. You know where the problem is? It's you. You do not believe. You have refused to respond to me in faith. In fact, Jesus says, it isn't just that I've told you. I have shown you who I am. I have done works in the name of my Father. And I have given the Father credit so that it doesn't seem like I'm some human being trying to take God's place. I have said I can do nothing apart from the Father. But I have done works among you that only God could do. These bear witness about me. I have done things that only God can do. So, yes, I'm talking about it, but I'm also showing you that I am who I say I am. And the problem isn't that I haven't given you the necessary information for faith. The problem is that you refuse to believe. You obstinately refuse because you will not bend your neck and you will not claim me as your king. That's Jesus' response. I've been clear. I've even shown you but you haven't responded to faith, in faith to what I've said or to what I've done. I think maybe we should consider that. What has Jesus said to me? What has he done in my life? And what has my response been to him? Let's keep going. Let's finish that sentence we left hanging. Verse 26. You do not believe in me because you are not from my sheep. My sheep heed my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them life eternal and they cannot ever be destroyed into eternity. And no one will snatch them away out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one can snatch away out of the Father's hand. 
I and the Father are one. So not everybody has responded to Jesus the way this Jewish leadership has. Some have responded by hearing what he has to say. Not just hearing, heeding his voice. Paying attention to his voice. And Jesus says, I know them. They're my sheep. I am their shepherd. We belong to each other. And they follow me. They don't track me down just to issue challenges. There's a good number of them that have left their jobs, their families, everything, and have just started following me. And they're here with me right now. These are my sheep. You know what I do for my sheep? I give them life eternal. I guarantee this life. They will never, ever, in Greek, that's a double negative, no, not. They will never, ever be destroyed into eternity. We can stretch forward as far as eternity will go. They will never, ever be destroyed. Why? Because my Father gave them to me. And you know what? He's bigger than anybody. You could take all the powers that be in all creation across the whole universe and get them to mount an offensive against God the Father. And guess who would win? There is no power in all creation capable of opposing him successfully. Jesus says, that is why nobody can snatch my sheep away from me because the Father has given them to me and nobody can take anything from the Father. And guess what? I and the Father are one. You're my sheep. There's no force in all creation capable of wrangling you out of my hand. In the Greek there, I and the Father are one. The, the one there is not in the masculine. It's in the neuter. So the force of it in Greek is I and the Father are one thing. He's not saying we're the same person, but he is saying that they are the exactly the same thing, which is one of those finer points of Trinitarian theology we talk about. God is one God in essence. It's not three gods. There is only one God. And in essence, Son, Father, and Holy Spirit are indistinguishable from one another, inseparable, because they are one God, but they are three persons. It's a mystery. But God is, uh, Jesus is making a very powerful statement of the nature of the Godhead here. I and the Father are one thing. Through the centuries, the church has wrestled to understand what all this means. And uh, what, what has arisen is this idea. We have three persons, one essence, one God. Jesus said about his sheep that they heed his voice. They listen and obey. He has said that he knows them personally and that they follow after him. 
I'd like to ask you to ponder for a moment. Does that describe you and your relationship with Jesus? Is your life of uh, yours a life of heeding his voice, being known by him, and following after him? Verse 31, the Jews again took up stones to stone him. Jesus answered, many good works I have shown you from the Father. For which work of these do you stone me? The Jews answered him, we do not stone you for a good work, but for blasphemy and because you being a man make yourself God. Perhaps not surprisingly, this Jewish leadership that has been so hostile to Jesus consistently from the beginning of the gospel, their response to what Jesus has said is to pick up stones. They want to stone him. Jesus kind of sarcastically asked them a question. I know some people get bent out of shape when I say that Jesus can be sarcastic. Read the Old Testament. God is really sarcastic. Uh, many times. When he talks to Israel, he, he lays it on thick sometimes. And this is that kind of thing. I've shown you a ton of good works that only God could do. Which one of these is the reason you want to kill me? Which good thing? Because there's no bad thing you're going to be able to point out. I've done not a single bad thing to anyone. Which of the good things I've done are you planning to kill me for? And the great irony of this, it's such a perversion of justice because stoning was meant to be a way in which communally the people of Israel rejected evil. And only the most horrendous of crimes was to be punished communally with stoning as a way of rejecting absolutely the crime committed. And this is what they want to do to Jesus. But they don't care. They don't care about anything he's done. It has nothing to do with any good works. Notice they don't say, no, you haven't done any good works. They just say, I don't care. I don't care that you've done good works that only God could do. It doesn't matter because you broke the rule. You're a man and you can't say, I'm God. Now, in every case but one that is an axiomatic truth anybody any human being who says I am God you can very safely assume they're lying except the one time God became a man there was an exception and Jesus is saying I know this is a big ask but it's not like I haven't shown you that I am who I say I am I've done things only God can do. We may have a doctor one day capable of healing a paralytic of 38 years. I think we still don't have that. But suppose we find our way to that. I can guarantee you, even if we could do that today, you couldn't tell him, stand up and walk, and he would walk right then. The best we could do is put that person in a year of rehab, and maybe then he could walk. Jesus said, get up, grab your cot, and go home. And instantly, he was able to walk. 
He took a man born blind. Born blind. He was blind before he even came out of his mother's womb and allowed him to see. Who can take five loaves of barley bread and two small fish and ask a multitude of more than 5,000 to sit down? I'm going to feed you all till you're stuffed and actually do it. Who can do that? Who can take jars of water and say, go serve it to somebody and all of a sudden it's the best wine they've ever tried? Who can do that? Not a one of us. So Jesus' works validate the audacious claim that he is God come to us in the flesh. How does Jesus respond? Verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called those gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be annulled, he whom the Father sanctified and sent into the cosmos, you tell, you blaspheme because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, don't believe in me. But if I do, even if you don't believe in me, believe in the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. This is a a sticky passage. Uh, Jesus first says, is it not written in your law, this sacred scripture God has given you? Now, technically, the quote he issues here is not from the books we would traditionally call of the law, the books of Moses. Uh, It's from the book of Psalms. Psalm 82, verse 6. So it isn't uh, technically the law, but oftentimes uh, people would use the term law to refer to the whole scriptures. And that's the way in which Jesus is using the term here. In your sacred scriptures, doesn't it say, I said, you are God's? Psalm 82 is an interesting psalm. It's a complaint about the unjust judges in Israel. And in that psalm, God starts speaking up. God himself. And God says this, I said, you are God's, but you're going to die just like any human being. So in that psalm, God uh, hyperbolically refers to these unjust judges as men who have seen themselves as so powerful and so high and mighty and so above everybody that they consider themselves God's. And Jesus says, you're no, God says, you're no God's. You're going to die like any other man. Well, that's the quote. Uh, but it is true that in that psalm, in the scriptures... You have God saying to human beings, you are God's. Now, we might, we might suppose then that Jesus' argument is, well, if God calls unjust judges God's, then any one of us could be called a God. I'm, I'm not making any greater claim than the unjust judges of Israel's past. We all have the right to call ourselves God's. Well, hopefully you realize that's problematic 
uh, a problematic way to understand what's being said here. And I think Jesus is not trying to say, I'm no different from the unjust judges of Israel, and therefore I have the same right they have to claim to be God. So what is he saying then? Well, I think if we look at John's gospel, it's very clear that Jesus isn't just saying, I'm some human being just like any other. Any, any one of you can be what I am. And some people try to read Jesus that way. But he makes all kinds of exclusive claims. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, in that statement, Jesus is very clearly not saying, I'm like any other guy. No, he's saying, I'm unlike any other guy. There is nobody like me. So I don't think that's the force of Jesus' argument here. So what is he trying to do? I think this is a, a common Hebrew uh, form of argumentation. Uh, it's called from lesser to greater. And the idea being, if something holds true in a lesser case, then it more rightly holds true in a greater case. Um, so, uh, for example... Uh, what he's saying here is if God, uh, and the, he, the term for that, Calvaromer, if you ever run across that, Q-A-L-V-A-H-O-M-E-R, anyway, Calvaromer, from lesser to greater. Uh, if God can hyperbolically refer to unjust judges as gods, then don't I, the actual, literal Son of God come in the flesh, have an even greater right to make that claim? He's not saying I'm just like them. He's saying I'm more than, and I have an even bigger claim to use that term of myself. Notice what he says, verse 36. He whom the Father sanctified and sent into the cosmos. Remember I told you this was a feast where they celebrated the fact that they had been able to re-sanctify, re-consecrate the temple and begin offering offerings there again. That's a little bit of a weird word. The Father sanctified or consecrated, made holy and sacred and set apart. Jesus is saying, what God has done, what God the Father has done in sending me into the world is the same type thing you are celebrating right now, the idea of a defiled thing being made clean again. But God has sent me not to sanctify a temple. He has sent me into the cosmos itself to sanctify. I have come from the Father to re-consecrate creation itself. Now, if God could call those unjust judges gods, don't I have an even greater claim to the name Son of God? Because I am actually, literally, the Son of God come into the world to consecrate it and cleanse it. And of course, the immediate response would be, you're no God. And Jesus points them back to the works. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe in me. If what I'm saying doesn't match what I'm doing, then obviously I'm a charlatan. Dismiss me. 
But if I am doing what I say, even if you don't like me, that should be enough to convince you. Believe in me for the works. And you know what will happen if you do that? That you're going to come to know, you're going to come to understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. We have a saying, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck, right? That's Jesus' argument. If I walk and talk and operate and do what I say I am, if everything lines up, even though the claim I am making is audacious, at least admit that the works I am doing are equally amazing. And understand that I am backing up what I am claiming with the works that are from the Father. Now here's the thing about Jesus' works. It isn't just being an agent by which a miracle happens because there are examples of prophets in the past that God used that way. But uh, it's the, the fact that we have in Jesus uh, God operating among us himself present himself among us. And the works that he is describing aren't just works of the Father because they're supernatural, but they're the works of the Father because they are like the kind of thing the Father has been doing all along. What did God do for Israel in the wilderness? He fed them. Every single day for 40 years, he fed them. They did not go hungry one day. And they were out in the middle of nowhere. God provides for his people. And then Jesus shows up and takes just a handful of bread and fish and feeds a multitude and says, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. It's not just the miraculous nature of the works, but the fact that they correspond with the nature of God as he has revealed himself. God is provider. God is healer. God gives life. Notice, Jesus is not self-centered. He's not asking people to come and shower him with accolades. Every time they, when they try to make him a king, he walks away. He has not gathered armies. He has not built up his brand. All he has done is come to love us and serve us and meet our need the way God has been doing all along. These are the works of of the Father. Believe. Jesus said that, that his words are confirmed, they're backed up by the things he's doing, things that only God can accomplish. And I guess the question I'd like you to ask yourself this morning is, what has Jesus done in your life that only God could have accomplished?
Let's finish the passage. Verse 39. So they were again seeking to seize him, and he escaped from their hand. And he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and he remained there. And many came to him and were saying, John did no sign, but everything John said about this one was true. And many believed in him there. As has happened so often in John's gospel, we have this encounter with Jesus, and at the end of it, we have kind of two very different responses to Jesus. One is the religious leaders who uh, are rejecting completely everything Jesus has to say to them, and all they want to do is grab him and kill him. But Jesus escapes from their hand. John doesn't explain how that happened, if it was some supernatural action or he simply walked out. But here's the clear thing. Try as they may, the powers that be were unable to kill Jesus until Jesus decided it was the moment. That's another evidence that Jesus is who he says he is because they, they wanted to kill him right then, but they were unable to. Jesus said it, no man takes my life, I lay it down. Until the moment was the moment he had chosen, his death would not occur. And he walked away. Some reject him. Others come to him and believe in him. He goes across the Jordan to this area where John the Baptist was originally baptizing. And a lot of people come to him there. And they're saying, you know, I can see the difference between John and Jesus. John didn't do this supernatural stuff that only God could do. But you know what? Every single thing he had to say about Jesus has proven to be absolutely true. John the Baptist always pointed people to Jesus. When his disciples complained to him, John, all of your disciples are running off after Jesus. He said, that is necessary. I have to get smaller. He has to get bigger. He told his disciples, you see that guy there? Look at him. That is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Every single thing John said about him is true and they believed in him some people want to erase Jesus from existence some people put their faith in him I guess the final question this morning is which of those best describes you I hope and pray that you have the courage to see Jesus, not just for who he says he is, but for who he has proven to be, and that you will turn to him in faith. Still today, people challenge Jesus to speak up and make clear who he is, and oftentimes this kind of challenge comes from people who have zero interest in recognizing Jesus as their Lord. I've heard people say these kinds of things. Here's the thing. Jesus has been speaking up for almost 2,000 years already. And he's been speaking clearly. He's not stuttering. He is very clearly calling people to himself. And those who heed his voice have the unanimous reaction and experience of a life transformed. So Jesus isn't Just yet another charlatan. 
He changes lives in ways that no psychiatrist can do, no charismatic leader can do. People today continue to lose their lives rather than deny Jesus because they have found him to be everything he claimed to be to the point that they would rather face death than deny him. When we look at Jesus and what he's doing in the lives of the people who have turned to him in faith, we see the hand of God at work. I would issue to you the challenge Jesus issued almost 2,000 years ago. If you're not going to believe just because of what Jesus says, then believe because of what he's doing. Either way, come to recognize that God Almighty stepped down to us to bring us back to purity, to cleanse us and rescue us and give us life. Please join me in prayer. Dear God, thank you that you have looked on us with love and that you have come to us and you have come to call us to yourself to be able to be known by you, treasured by you, held in your hand, safe eternally. God, I pray for hearts that turn to you every day in trust and faith. Take our lives in your hands and do with them what only you can do. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.